Because so many times I think we think that the face of a church or what was most important in a church, people go to this church and that, well, I like that pastor. You know, they got a, they got a flashy pastor or they got, a, they got a praise and worship leader that comes up and he's dressed cool and he wears skinny jeans. I asked Matt about that one day. Maybe he could wear skinny jeans. I don't, I don't think that went over too well. But so, so people chase personalities. God doesn't chase personalities. He doesn't care about the charismatic necessarily or the person who's flashy. God is as much a God of ordinary people as he is of people that we put up on a high level. And, and that was kind of what come into my spirit as I begin to study and look at this man, Isaac, this man, Isaac, because in a lot of ways, Isaac was a hard guy to study and prepare a message for. There's just not a whole lot in the Bible about Isaac. There's, there's, there's 50 chapters in the book of Genesis. 12 of those are dedicated to Abraham. 10 of them are dedicated to Jacob. 11 of them are dedicated to Joseph, and about two and a half to Isaac, although he lived longer than all the other patriarchs. So what in the world? And so as I began to look into the life of this man, I realized he was just kind of a, an ordinary guy. He didn't seem to do anything necessarily extraordinary. But how many of you know that God is God of our ordinary days just as much as he is God of our extraordinary days? I wrote this down. This just dropped in my spirit, and I wrote this down. It says, God is God of our ordinary days as much as God of our extraordinary need. And I think too many times people come to God when they have an extraordinary need. And God is able to meet our needs. But there's nothing like walking with God day by day by day when there's not an extraordinary need and facilitating and building that relationship so when that extraordinary need comes, there's an intimacy between you and God that has been established in the days of walking the ordinary days. God's with you on your job site. God's with you in the schools. God's with you wherever you go. He's the God of our ordinary. So I, t I titled the message, Isaac, the son of promise and the God of the ordinary. I found this by, by Eugene Peterson. It said this, it said, the culture conditions us to approach people in situations as journalists do. See the big, exploit the crisis, edit and abridge the commonplace, interview the glamorous. The scriptures and our best pastoral traditions train us in a different approach. Notice the small, preserve in the commonplace, appreciate the obscure. Our society puts a lot of emphasis on the great, the big, the famous, God doesn't. He, put, he looks on our hearts. And certainly we'll see that's what he did in the life of Isaac. The introduction says, the life of the patriarch Isaac is less than eventful. Unlike his larger-than-life father, son, and grandson, he does not do any extraordinary exploits for his God. However, we do not have to be a larger-than-life superstar, pastor, musician, or Sunday school teacher to be important to God. There is a place for everyone in his kingdom, even those that the world would call ordinary. Although he did not do the extraordinary things of his father and son, God is still referred to as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. 
He's not the God of Abraham and Jacob. He is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he's also mentioned in the Hall of Faith in Hebrews. So God is a God of the ordinary. Lord, I thank you. Thank you for that you are. Because God, in some ways, we're all ordinary. But we serve an extraordinary God. And you have a place for all of us. And so, Lord, I pray your anointing. I thank you for your presence that we felt in this place already as we've worshipped you. Lord, I pray your anointing on me. God, that the words that I say will be your words, not my words, and the hearts to hear it. In Jesus' name. The text was Genesis 21 through 28. Now, that just brought you up to where we are. Much of that was not about Isaac. As I mentioned to you, there's not a lot of chapters in the Bible about Isaac. But what I wanted to do is just give you an overview of who Isaac is. And most of his story is told in Genesis 24 through 26. But Isaac was the son of promise. Genesis 17, 19 through 21 reads like this. It says, Then God said, No, Sarah, your wife shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant and his descendants after him. And as for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him, and I will make him fruitful, and will multiply him exceedingly. He shall beget twelve princes, and I will make him a great nation. But my covenant I will establish with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. That was God's response to Abraham. If you remember last week when Abraham knew that God had promised him heirs, God had promised him descendants. And Abraham just couldn't see how that was going to happen. He didn't have a son. His wife was barren. And so he concocted plans. The first one was by Sarah. His wife said, look, I'm, I'm barren. I can't bear you a son. Go lie with my servant, Hagar. She can give you a son, and that will be the descendants. God said, no. God said, no. That's not the way it's going to work. And so Abraham also said, well, I have a servant. I have a male servant in my home. His name is Eleazar. That must be the way you're going to do it. God said, no. And that's what this scripture is based on. God said, no, you're, that, that's Descendant is going to come from your body. And he named him. He named him. He was promised and he was named by God. Sarah was 90 years old and Abraham was 100 years old when Isaac was born. Now they lived longer than us, but that was still a little old. Can you imagine being that old? We're supposed to be grandparents then if we make it that long. But that's how old they were when he was born. He was promised and named by God. Isaac inherited the promise of the covenant. He inherited that promise of the covenant. That same promise that God had made to Abraham, he passed down to that son, Isaac. Ishmael received the blessing, but not the covenant. Ishmael was the son that was born of Hagar, the maidservant, but he would not receive the covenant. But God did say, I will bless him. He said, I will make him a great nation. And I told you when we first began to study Abraham that Abraham is known as the, as the father of the three major Christian or three major faiths of our nation. Judaism, Christianity, of which that blessing came through Abraham to us through Christ, and Islam. Well, it is in the life of Ishmael that we see that. It is in the life of Ishmael that we see, because Ishmael is often credited as being the father of the Arab people, and most of the Arab nations are Muslim. As a matter of fact, in Genesis 16 and 12, this was prophesied about Ishmael 
It said this, he will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone and everyone's hand against him. He will live in hostility towards all his brothers. And as father of the Arab nations, ever since that, up until today, there has been conflict between the Jewish people and the Arab nations. We see that playing out in the Middle East today. Over what? Land. And we said there was a land promised to Abraham. And that still happens today. The descendants of Ishmael became known as the Arabs, which basically means nomads. From the beginning, the descendants of Ishmael were warlike people as they lived in hostility toward all the tribes related to them. There's a popular theory among Muslims and some Christians that Arabian Muslims are direct descendants of Ishmael. In fact, Muhammad was a major proponent of this idea, claiming to be a descendant of Ishmael according to the Quran. So God made him a great nation, but he went on to be the nation of the Arab people, mostly Muslim nations. And we see conflict still today between the descendants of Ishmael and the descendants of Isaac. Isaac inherited his father's wealth. Genesis 25 and 5 says this, And Abraham gave all that he had to Isaac. But Isaac inherited something else from his father. Isaac inherited his father's sin nature. Now, we know he didn't ultimately get that from his father. He got it from the same place I got my sin nature and you got your sin nature. We got it from our first father, Adam. When Adam sinned in that garden, that sin nature was imputed to all of us. And now every person born today has that sin nature, what we refer to as original sin. But what's interesting about this is that Isaac did the exact same sin with the exact same king that his father had done. If you remember last week, Abraham had gone into Gerar. He met with Abimelech. He took his wife in there. And he said, they're going to think his wife was a beautiful woman. Sarah was a beautiful woman. And he said, look, they will kill me for your sake. Say you're my sister. And you remember how that worked out. Well, Isaac did the same thing. There was a, there was a famine in the land again. God told Isaac, though, he said, do not go into Egypt. Stay in the promised land. He goes into Gerar and he meets with Abimelech. Same king and does the same thing. He tells his wife, Rebecca, you're a beautiful woman. They're going to kill me for your sake. Tell them you're my sister. But it turned out a little bit different this time. Abimelech, the king, is walking by, and apparently he must look into the window, and he sees Isaac loving on his sister. And he said, something wrong here. So he brings him out. He said, why would you tell me that was your sister? And he said, I was afraid that you would kill me. And Abimelech's like, let me tell you something. I've been on this ride before, and I know what your God is capable of. He scared me to death in a dream. He closed up all the wombs of the women. Last time this happened, this ain't happening again. Get on back where you came from. And he did. Why? He was protecting Isaac the same reason he protected Abraham and Sarah. He was protecting Isaac and Rebekah. He's protecting the seed of that woman. He, will always, he always protected that seed until that Messiah could come. He protected it. But what I want to deal with for just a minute here as I, as I studied this, and I thought how Isaac did the exact same thing that his daddy had done. I want to deal with this issue of generational sin. Generational sin. We hear that a lot. Sometimes people call it a generational curse. It's this idea that, okay, my dad was an alcoholic. My granddad was an alcoholic. I'm going to be an alcoholic. My dad was abusive. 
My granddad was abusive, I'm going to be abusive. My dad was a womanizer, my granddad was a womanizer. I mean, it's just, it's just in the genes, it's the way it's going to be. That's not so. That's not so. And so many times people use that as an excuse. God is in the business of breaking generational sin. Now, there is a scripture that sometimes people look at that might lead you to believe that. It's found in Genesis 20 and 5 through 6. And I'm going to pick up in the first full sentence of that. This is when God has given the Ten Commandments to Moses. And he says, For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and the fourth generations, to those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. Well, if you read that, it almost seems like, well, wow, I mean, my sons, my grandsons, they're going to suffer for my sin. That's not so. What, what is happening there is for those who hate me, there is a pattern. We can pass down a pattern to our generations if we're not careful. I found this definition of, of generational sin. It says, generational sins are weaknesses or tendencies that are handed down to us through the generations from parents or members of our family. These sins can involve behavioral patterns and ways of thinking that keep us trapped in the past. Even though sin can be passed down through the generations, each person is responsible for his or her own personal sins against the Lord. As a matter of fact, Moses would go on to write in Deuteronomy 24 and 16, He'd say this, fathers shall not be put to death for their children, nor shall children be put to death for their fathers. A person shall be put to death for his own sins. We all have our own responsibilities. Now, I'm not here to negate the fact that our, that our upbringing and our past, it does and it can have an impact on us. But there's nothing that says that the sins, the shortcomings of those before us have to be a curse to us that we cannot overcome. The power and the anointing and the presence of the Holy Spirit is much stronger than that. And when a person can come before the Lord and say, this stops today, I, I don't want to do this anymore, I do not want to live this way anymore, and they have a humble heart before God, it can change. It can change. The best example of that is found in, in uh, the, book of, the book of 2 Kings chapter 22. 2 Kings 22. There was a, a king named Josiah. Josiah came to be the king of Judah at eight years old. Now, Josiah's daddy was a man named Ammon. Ammon was a wicked king. The Bible says he did evil in the sights of the Lord. He led the people into idolatry. His granddaddy was a man named Manasseh. The Bible said he was an exceedingly wicked king. He set up gods and idols in the temple. He was a wicked man. So here's Josiah. His daddy's wicked. His granddaddy's wicked. To be sure, he's going to be wicked. But that's not what happened. When Josiah took the throne at eight years old, it says this. It says, but Josiah did what was right in the eyes of God. And he tore down all those idols. He said, we're not doing this anymore. He went and he had the book of law brought back in and read. And he established the ways and the patterns of God, not the ways and the patterns of evil. What was different about Josiah that was different about his dad and granddad? The answer is found in 2 Kings 22 and 19. It says this, Because your heart was tender and you humbled yourself before the Lord. If there's generational sin, if there's things in your past that you don't want in your life anymore, you, you, you come before the Lord with a tender heart. 
You humble yourself before him. You say, God, I want this to stop today. And you put your trust in him. It will stop today. It doesn't have to be that way. It didn't have to be that way for Isaac. But he chose that way. Natural inheritance. We see, we see that Isaac inherited a lot of things from his father. Wealth. We see he committed the same sins. He inherited the covenant. Let me ask you this. Natural inheritance or spiritual inheritance? What are you leaving? What are you leaving for your family? Are you leaving a natural inheritance? I hope so. It's okay. I hope to leave some natural inheritance for my children. I don't know how many of you are familiar with a man named Randy Alcorn. Randy is a prolific writer on heaven. But he's also written some financial books about managing our money as, as believers, according to the scriptures. And he has said this, I intend to die broke. I'm going to take all the proceeds from my ministry, all the money I make, and I'm going to give it away to advance the kingdom of God. And his children know this, and they're fine with it. And that's okay. That's his choice. Doesn't say that's what I have to do. Doesn't say what you have to do. But he's chosen to do that. But Proverbs 13, says, A good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. So if God blesses you and puts you in a position to leave a natural inheritance to your children, good. But I want to tell you the most important inheritance you will give you to, your, to your family, to your children, is a spiritual inheritance. The entire premise of this whole series has been based on that. This idea that we have a spiritual ancestry. When I taught this Wednesday night several, several months ago, maybe over a year ago, and I asked people in the audience, tell me who you attribute your faith to. We all have kind of a matriarch or a patriarch in our family that we say, it was because of this grandmother, this grandfather, this father, this mother, that we, we say that's who started the, the, the faith in our, in our family. But the greatest thing you can do is pass down a spiritual heritage. Ephesians 6 and 4 says, And you fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and the admonition of the Lord. That's the greatest thing you'll do for your children, is to take them when they're young and bring them up in the training and the admonition of the Lord, especially today, because it seems like everything is doing the exact opposite with them. It wants to bring them up in the exact opposite. Isaac lived an ordinary life. As I said, as I went through and I read these chapters, I thought, gosh, Lord, there's just nothing extraordinary here. I mean, his father was larger than life. His son went on to be larger than life and his grandson. I mean, even his wife was picked for him by his dad. That's all of chapter 24. Is where Abraham, he says, I don't want my, my son marrying a foreign woman. And he tells his servant, go out and find a wife for my son. And that happens, and her name is Rebecca. And that's all chapter 24. And most of the chapter that's dedicated to Isaac is chapter 26. And I read it, and I read it, and I read it. And it's digging wells. I'm like, Lord, he's, he's digging wells. What what's, what's spiritual principle is there in digging wells? And as I read through it, what I realized is that Isaac was a busy man. He had inherited all of his wealth from his dad. His dad was wealthy. His dad had cattle. The Bible even says that, that Isaac had been a farmer. And now he's out digging wells. 
after Abraham had passed away, the Philistines in the area who, who did not like Abraham, they were clogging the wells up. Water's important. Water was real important then. There was no city water and sewer. How many of you live on a well? A few. If that well runs dry, you're going to be out digging another well, aren't you? Water's important. And so Isaac had been out reopening these wells that his dad had dug. And then when he would open a well, the Philistines would come in and they'd say, that's our well, that's our water. So here this man is, he's, he's cattle farming, he's farming, he's digging wells, he's doing this, he's doing that. And I thought about my life and I thought about many of your lives. You get up each morning, I got to get these kids ready, I got to get them out the door, I got to get to work, I got a deadline I'm trying to meet, there's soccer practice afters, there's wrestling practice afterwards, I got this, they got church this day, I got that, there's family things going on, I have some friends want to get together, Lord, slow this thing down, stop the train, I want to get off. Anybody else? Oh, man, y'all must live easy lives. I know what that means. Tammy and I often look at Michael and Christy and Gary now and think, I remember those days of trying to get kids up and get them ready and get them out the door and do this and do that. And it's like, it's just too much. And that's kind of what I see in, in the life of Isaac there in chapter 26. But then something happens to me that I read this interesting. Because if we're not careful, church, and what happens is that we will allow the busyness of life to crowd out what's important. And I see it. Oftentimes when I'm riding in the church on Sunday mornings, I'll see somebody jogging down Guest Road. I'll see someone out there cutting their grass. And I don't know anything about their spiritual life, but I wonder, I say, I wonder, I wonder if they know what's important. Is the grass that important? Is, is, is getting the workout in that important? But I don't know anything about Could be. But what happens if we're not careful when life gets that busy? And this has happened to me in my attitude at times. The first thing that we'll put on the chopping block if we're not careful is the things of God. I got this deadline. I know what I'll do. I'll make it up Sunday. I won't do this. I won't, I won't do my devotion time. And when you start to sacrifice them, the world would slowly crowd it out. It'll crowd it out. And it was right in the middle of digging wells that Genesis 26, 24 through 25 happens. It says, And the Lord appeared to him at night, this is Isaac, and said, I am the God of your father Abraham. Do not fear, for I am with you. I will bless you, and I multiply your descendants for my servant Abraham's sake. So he built an altar there, and he called on the name of the Lord, and he pitched his tent there. And there Isaac's servant dug a well. And so I see, like I've done, and maybe like many of you have done, Isaac has laid down and, and everything that's going on in his life is running through his head. All he's got to do, these deadlines he's got to meet, all this work's got to be done, schoolwork, whatever it is that competes for your time. It's in that moment that God speaks to him. And it's in that moment that he builds an altar and he calls on the name of the Lord. It's in that moment. And so, and I'm going to show you what happened after that, right, at, right after that. But what I want you to know, church, is you had better have some hard no's in your life. If you don't have some hard no's, it's going to get crowded out. 
The hard no's for me is from Sunday morning, from the time I get up, to after service on Sunday is a hard no. There's not going to be any business dealing. There's not going to be making up of a workout. There's not going to be any sporting events. There's just not going to happen. This is God's time. And if, if I would have allowed in my life, and if you allow in your life, life will crowd it out. But you better have some hard no's. And that same hard no exists for me. Now, I want you to decide what's important for you. But that same hard no is often for me on Wednesday nights, the Friday night prayer. Now, sometimes not as hard a no as Sunday morning. But it's still hard no's. Just not going to happen. Because if you'll set the hard no, then the decision is made. And the reason I do that is because I believe, and what I have experienced is that the principle of first fruits can apply to your time like it can your money. What is first, fruit? first fruits? First fruits said if we give God the first of, of our, what's important to us, of our, what's, what's the two most, now this is, a, this is a churchy saying, I know it goes on a church marquee, but it's true. Most of those things have some truth to them. You want to know where a man's heart is? You look at his checkbook and his calendar. That's a true statement. You'll find out what's important to him. And so our time and our money are the most important things to us. And the, the, the principle of first fruits that applies to our money is typically the tithe. Now, a lot of debate over that, and I'm just going to tell you where I stand. I don't believe the tithe to be a New Testament requirement of giving. All right? I don't believe that. 10% we have to give that. I believe in the tithe. I think there's blessing in the tithe. We will tell you we think there's blessing in the tithe. It gives you a target. Okay? But clearly, there is a pattern of giving in the New Testament. And Paul gives it to us. He says on the first day of the week, that's when? Today. Everyone, each person, that's all of you, there's no exceptions, is to set aside something as the Lord has prospered him, and to give it. We all have a responsibility in that. And what we will tell you, what I have experienced, and you can talk to a lot of people who have experienced systematic giving to God's kingdom, particularly those who believe and, and practice a tithe, something has just happened to the finances. Money seems to stretch. We give the first fruit of God to him, and we find that the other 90% is blessed, and it just works out. Talk to people who've experienced it. Talk to people who've lived it. They'll tell you. Now, I'm not talking about having a Mercedes and a million-dollar home. I'm talking about God superintending and being a part of your finances. I want God to superintend and be a part of my finances. But to do that, I need to practice the giving, the, the principle of first fruits. God, the first of what I get comes to you. That, and I'm not saying that to you in a legalistic way. I'm just telling you, if you've never experienced it, try it. Just try it. But I also believe that that same principle applies to our time, can apply to our time. And what I have found in my life is that I say, God, this is your time. Sunday morning is your time. Wednesday is your time. My Friday night prayer is your time. I, I try to carve in some time there for my personal devotion. And I, because I know we live in a culture today that will tell you, you ain't got to go to church to be a Christian. Hogwash. And I'm not talking about our shut-ins. I'm not talking about our shut-ins. The question is, what's important to you? 
And moms, young moms and dads, and I know we got some here, I know there's a lot on you pressuring you. Pressuring. And there was a time in our culture when our, our, our nation knew the importance of families coming together on Sunday morning and coming into the house of God. Things won't open. There wasn't com- things competing for that time. There certainly wasn't soccer practice and ball practice and all these things you have today, but it is. So now you, as followers of Christ, you have to make that decision. You have to set that standard in your family as to what is important. And you're going to either instill in them this idea that busyness is important and the things of God are secondary, or you're going to instill in them that the things of God are primary. I heard this statistic, less than 1% of people who play athletics. And I played athletics. I coached them. My kids did. I think there's great value in it. But less than 1% will get a scholarship to a D1 school. Certainly probably less than that will ever play major league ball. But there's a 100% chance they will stand before the Lord one day. And there's also a 100% chance they're going to go out into a world today and they're going to face things that I never faced. It's so important to give them a foundation of faith. And and I'm not trying to lay a guilt trip on anyone. You will work these things out between you and the Lord. You you decide how you work that out. But what I believe, and what I believe happened with Isaac, if you give the first of that time to God, you'll find that the deadlines and the things you're worried about, they work out. And they didn't stress you out as much as you thought they would. Right after Isaac built that altar and called on the name of the Lord, this is what happened. Abimelech comes to him and he says, Isaac, let's make a truce. Let's quit all the fussing. Let's quit all the arguing over the water and whose well it is. And they make a truce. They make a covenant. And I told you that at the end of verse 25, it said that Isaac's servants dug a well. Well, right after that, is, is Genesis 26 and 32. And I think Kristen's got that up there here. And it came to pass the same day that Isaac's servants came and told him about the well which they had dug and said to him, we have found water. So right after that, right after he builds that altar, right after he calls on the name of the Lord, the whole well digging, the whole stressors of the well is over. A big chunk to me of what is occupying Isaac's time, certainly it's occupying his mind, God has dealt with. And I believe that could have been because of the principle of first fruits. And so I just challenge you to exercise the principle of first fruits. We, we live in a culture today that is going to say that means nothing, but it does. It does. And to challenge you to practice that. Isaac was an ordinary guy, but God uses ordinary people to do extraordinary things. There's a a story in the Bible about a man named Ananias. Paul, most of you would know Apostle Paul. You've heard his name before. Some of you may have never heard of Ananias. Paul had an encounter with Christ. Paul had been persecuting the Christians. He had an encounter with Christ. He goes blind. He goes away. And God speaks to a man named Ananias. He says, I want you to go and pray for Paul. And Ananias says, are you you crazy? That that would be like God asking us to go pray for Osama bin Laden when he was alive. This man hates us. He says, I've spoken to him. He's going to be my servant. Go pray for him. 
Ananias goes and prays for him. Paul's eyes are opened. He becomes a great missionary. Ananias is really never spoken of again. An ordinary guy that God used to do something extraordinary. Matt, you guys can come on up. I'm going to ask a couple, I'm going to throw out a couple names here. And if you, you've ever heard of these people, I want you to raise your hand for me. How many have ever heard the name Edward Kimball? Raise your hand. Kristen ain't never heard of Edward Kimball. Maybe she has. I hadn't before I studied this, so don't feel bad. How about the name Dwight L. Moody? Well, quite a few. Quite a few have heard of Dwight L. Moody. Okay. How about Wilbur Chapman? Wilbur Chapman. Gerald has. How about Billy Sunday? Billy Sunday. Yeah, quite a few have heard of Billy Sunday. Showing our age in here, actually. How about this? How many have heard this name before? Billy Graham. I, don't see, I think every hand in the place is up. Billy Graham. Edward Kimball was a guy who taught a Sunday school class to a bunch of rambunctious boys. Some of you have done that, rambunctious boys and rambunctious girls. And there was one in there that he just really thought that he needed to go speak to after he got a little bit older. And he talked to this young boy in a stock room of a shoe store. And he, he, and he impressed on him the importance of a relationship with Jesus Christ. That young man's name was Dwight L. Moody. Dwight L. Moody went on to be a great evangelist. Under Dwight L. Moody's ministry, a man by the name of Wilbur Chapman got saved. He went on to be an evangelist. Under Wilbur Chapman, a man by the name of Billy Sunday got saved. And I missed one, but under Billy Sunday, a man named Mordecai Ham got saved. And Mordecai Ham did a crusade in Charlotte, North Carolina. And a young man known to his family as Billy Frank felt the call of the Holy Spirit and went down and surrendered his, his, name, his life to Christ. And Billy Frank, we would know him as Billy Graham. And he went on to arguably the greatest evangelist that our world has ever known. And it all started with an ordinary man by the name of Edward Kimball, who taught a Sunday school class. You don't have to do, be an extraordinary person for God to do extraordinary things through you. God's the God of the ordinary, just like he's the God of the extraordinary. I'm going to ask everyone, if you would, to stand. The first step in all of that, though, is surrendering yourself to the Lord, surrendering yourself to Christ. If you've never done that this morning, you've never put your trust in him, or maybe life has gotten in the way. It gets in the way. And the things of God have just kind of fallen off. And you've decided to come back. And you want us to come down and say, I, I just need to rededicate my life. I need to rededicate some things. Maybe you're here this morning and you don't have a hard no. Like I said, I, I didn't do that to put you on a guilt trip. Some of it, whether, there was a time when I was a working shift work as a police officer, I couldn't. That was my full-time job. Police officers, doctors, nurses, many people, they have to work on Sunday. But what I'm talking about is just the things that just, those peripheral things that just start to crowd out the things of God. Don't let that happen.
establish some hard no's in your life. Establish some hard no's in your family. So if you're here this morning and you, you say, I need to establish some hard no's in my life. I need to make some priorities in my life. Come down and pray. Come down and spend some time before the Lord. Everyone, if you bow your uh, head and close your eyes. Lord, I thank you. I thank you that you are the God of the ordinary. That you use ordinary people to do extraordinary things. That's really the, 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 the scripture. How you used ordinary people to do extraordinary things. And under the sound of my voice, there's a bunch of ordinary people. And I don't know what you may do through them. But I know when we humble ourselves before you and we put our trust in you, there's no telling what you might do through us. God, in this man, Edward Kimball, only heaven will know the blessing from what he, how he was obedient, how he taught a bunch of rambunctious boys in a Sunday school room. And so I pray, Lord, if there's one here under the sound of my voice that you're dealing with, there's some stressors in their life, there's some things going on in their life, and they're like, I, I need to get some things straight. I need to set some priorities in order. That They'll do that this morning. That they'll create some hard nose. They'll say, Lord, I, I'm going to make the time for you a priority in my life and watch what happens. Watch what happens when we make you the priority of our life. I pray that if there's one here, Lord, that your spirit is dealing with, your Holy Spirit is working through conviction, that they'll come down and kneel in this altar. God, I know it can happen in the pew. I know that. There's something special about the altar. There's something special about the altar. So this altar is open, church. I want to linger just for a moment for anyone who might like to come down and have someone meet you here and pray over you. If you have a special need this morning, we had a great prayer Friday night praying over the needs of, of each other. We believe in that. If you have a special need this morning, you have a need for healing, you have a need for uh, there's something going on in your mind, in, in, your, in, your, in your life emotionally. There's something going on with your family. I, God is the God of the extraordinary. This altar is open. Come down and we'll pray over you. We'll pray over your need. As our praise and worship team begins to sing, I'm going to ask everyone who will, let's gather down in front of the altar and we'll, find out, we'll end in our service with a, with a short time of, uh, of worship around the altar.